So uh, what I want to talk about this morning is joy. One of the great Advent themes is joy, and that really comes from Luke chapter 2, 8 through 16. So I just want to start with that, and we'll get into that topic, because it's not as simple as it sounds. So it says, verse 8 says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased, or with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. So when the angel announced the incarnation of God himself into human flesh as a baby, he characterized it as good news of great joy. So it's, it's not, it's, this is obviously good news. The, 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 the king of all kings, the, the Messiah himself has been born, which in itself, to say that God has been born is... If it were not true, it would be just the greatest heresy, right? The, the idea that God would have, an eternal God would have a beginning is a mystery of mysteries, which we're gonna, we can talk about later. Um, but, but that statement is good news. This is great news. But it's not just good news like, hmm, heartwarming, Hallmark Channel good news, right? You know, snow falling gently, um, but still no need for snow plows. That kind of snow. Makes everything pretty, but it's not a hassle. You know, everyone getting along, sleigh bells jingling in the background, Christmas trees on every corner, heartwarming, good news. It's good news of great joy. Great, the maximum joy. And so this is what characterizes the gospel, and it should characterize our response to it. I think it's interesting that, at least in this country, we have embedded in our original documents a statement from Thomas Jefferson that says that we are owed the right, we have the right to pursue happiness. It's built into the foundational idea of this country that everybody has the right to pursue happiness. But the problem is that we all know, we've all learned, at least from experience, that pursuing happiness doesn't get you happiness. Pursuing things that make you happy is how you get happiness. Pursuing the things that create happiness. Happiness is the fruit of something. It always is. If you run around trying to get happiness, it's like it's slippery. It's like trying to squeeze sand in your hand. It just falls out every time and you just wear yourself out trying to be happy. So... That begs the question, aren't we talking about joy? Is joy and happiness the same thing? And I'm going to contend that it is the same thing. 
Christians have created a weird separation between joy and happy. You've heard this before if you've been around, and I probably said it myself, right? Well, you may not be happy, but at least you can have joy. What even is that? Like, what, 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 is joy some kind of thing where some mysterious state in between something that makes you smile and something that makes you sad and some kind of weird internal happiness that doesn't, where, where you're happy inside but your face doesn't know it? Right? Where, where, where you're really sad but deep, deep down. I think what people are confusing it with is peace. Like that's, but that's a different thing and we will that's one of the things i'm going to get to there'll there'll be a sermon on peace all right but joy is and happiness in the bible like are the same thing and you can i have examples i'm not going to read them in the notes uh of various scriptures where it can be translated and it is translated depending on which version of the bible which translation you use happiness joy um uh, gladness is another one they're all the same word the same idea Okay, so, so you can't be joyful in a biblical sense and not be happy. There is no context in which joy is mentioned. Someone has joy and you can't see it. Joy doesn't exist in a hidden way. When you are joyful, everybody knows you're joyful. It is evident. You don't have to ask, are you experiencing joy? It's just like in the New Testament when somebody's filled with the Spirit, nobody has to ask, is that guy filled with the Spirit? It's evident by just seeing how he's acting. Same thing with joy. If you're joyful, you see it. If you're, not, if you're sad, you, you see it, right? This is how joy works. However, well, let me just say this. I think we've actually cheapened happiness as a result of this confusion is we've made happiness kind of unimportant in the Christian life. We've made it like, well, it's nice to be happy, and it's nice that you're happy, but the world is a messed up place, and I'm sad about it, and that's it. And we, we define like true, authentic Christianity as one that is devoid of joy, or devoid of happiness, and full of a kind of somber sadness where our worship music now is often filled with an angsty kind of stare at my belly button and loving Jesus hurts. Like somehow worship is painful and angsty and sort of, you know, Metallica without the guitars. Sort of angry and like, oh, love you, Lord. And it's like just droning and sad and introspective. But that's not what should characterize the Christian life. And I think we've actually really, we've run people off. Because what people want, what all of us want in our hearts is to be happy. Like in a real sense. Like truly happy. Like think about the people you love and when you ask them, are you happy, what do you mean? It's not superficial. It's a real deep question. Are you happy? I want you to be, think about your kids if you have kids. I want you to be happy. Think about your spouse if you have a spouse, your friends, the people you love. You want them to be happy. We all want it. And when we present a gospel that is devoid of happiness, that is devoid of joy, it is unattractive. When people go, well, 
I mean, y'all look like a bunch of sad, serious, somber people that can't laugh. You have no joy. You have no life. You just come together and you sing sad songs and you go home. And you talk about all the stuff you're not allowed to do anymore. And this is unattractive. This is, doesn't sound like good news of great joy, does it? But when the angel appears in the sky to these shepherds who are just doing their job, lowly shepherds, they don't announce it like, hey guys, look, I know it's tough and it's going to get harder. But Jesus is here, you know, Messiah's come. Um, prepare yourselves because he's going to wreck everything. And it's going to be sad. But you'll get through it. Eventually, he'll come back, and then, then it'll be okay. Like, that's not the message. It's a, it's a celebration, a multitude of angels. First one as the intro, right? And they're freaked out. And then it looks like basically all of them show up. A multitude, an uncountable number of angels appear in the sky and begin singing a song. It's a musical. They just break into song like, you know, I don't know, whatever the late, coolest musical is right now. I don't know what it is. Hamilton or something, right? That's, am I, I'm old. I'm showing my age already. I, I'm sorry. It's, it was before my time. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, so it's a, it's, this is a joyous celebratory thing, and I, we have separated happiness quite often from what it means essentially to be a Christian and what the gospel is, we're taking the good out of the news and the joy out of the news. And we have to put it up. My goal this morning is to put it back together. All right? So, having said all that, there is a difference between Christian happiness and non-Christian happiness. Those are the real categories. Christian happiness and non-Christian The kind of happiness you can get in God versus the kind of happiness you can get without him, okay? Uh, there's a great author who's written a lot about this topic named David Murray who talks about seven kinds of happiness. Well, first he makes this great case that happiness and joy are the same thing, and then he, he says, here's seven types of happiness. We have nature happiness, which is like going out and seeing a beautiful, some beautiful sunset makes you feel joy. Social happiness, being together with friends, you know, the people that you like, not the people that you don't like, that kind of social happiness. Vocational happiness, success in your work. Physical happiness, I think y'all know what that means. Intellectual happiness, humor happiness, stand-up comedy, laughing, telling jokes, humor happiness. And then spiritual happiness. And Murray makes the case, the first six, are available to everybody whether you have God or not. Like anybody can go out in nature and they can watch a sunset and they can feel what you feel. But what they don't feel that you can feel in that moment is worship, a worshipful response to God, that God made this. And suddenly there's a spiritual happiness that enters into that moment. Other people who don't have Christ do not have that. They look at the same sunset and they feel happiness, but it is an inferior happiness. And they may not know it because they haven't experienced the spiritual happiness. But that is unavailable to them without God. And it is inferior. You need to hear that. It is not the same. It is not the same joy that you feel at the sunset that they do. 
So that spiritual happiness is exclusively the domain of the follower of Jesus. Murray says that spiritual happiness provides more joy and pleasure than all the other six put together. And that is the one joy that you can't have until your sins are forgiven and you are reconciled to God. It is the one joy that all the other joys point to. So going back to the sunset, you see a sunset. What does the sunset mean? That what does its beauty mean? Because it means something. It's singing something. It's preaching, declaring something in the universe. That's what the psalmist says, right? It's declaring something. It's more than just a beautiful thing to look at that makes me feel happy. There's something else behind it, and that something else behind it is it's pointing to a greater joy. And that greater joy is my reconciliation with God, my relationship with God. I can walk with him in the cool of the day and he loves me and he knows me and I can speak to him and he listens and he can speak to me and sometimes I listen, right? This is, the, I can have a relation, that's a joy. And that's what the sunset is telling us about. All these other things, when you sit with friends, you just have a great time and your heart is warmed. Anybody can experience that sense of community. But you know what's missing if you don't have Christ? is the presence of Christ in those people you're sitting with. And that somehow it's like there's another man in the fire, so to speak, when you're sitting around and sharing a meal or sharing a conversation. There's someone else there among you, and that's Jesus. The presence of Christ is there, and it elevates. So that feeling of happiness you have in your social circle is also pointing to something greater, which we are bound together by the Spirit of Christ. We are an eternal family, not just a temporary family. Right? Each one of these things points to something, a greater joy, and that joy makes all the other joys pale in comparison. All this is dependent on the nature and the character of God because, as it turns out, God is happy. Just before we read these verses, just in your normal state, maybe not at church where, it's, where you're kind of being encouraged, but in your normal state going out your day, through your day and you imagine God the Father and his general disposition towards you, what do you imagine? Is he grumpy? Is he annoyed? Does he love you but he's disappointed in you? What do you imagine? Because the Bible says, yes, sometimes God is wrathful over sin. Sometimes he mourns and weeps over sin, but he is also happy, joyful. Look at this, Acts 14, 16 to 17. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness or joy or happiness. Satisfying your hearts with food and he gave you happiness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So Luke tells us in Acts that God provides happiness like food. He's giving it to you. When you are happy in Him, that is a gift from Him, just like the food you ate that's on your table. 
All food, all rain, all blessing, and all happiness is from God. 1 Timothy 1.11 calls God the blessed or happy God. I love this. He names God. He refers to God as the blessed God, which just means the joyful or the glad or the happy God. He is the happy God. It is his nature. It is essential to the nature of God. It's like love. God is happy. God is love. God is happy. He is self-existent. This means that he needs nothing outside of himself to be himself. It's a wonderful thing about God. Many wonderful things, but one of them is he self doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He gets along just fine. He loves you, but he doesn't need you. There's no other relationship you have in your life that is like that. But what that means is he doesn't need you to be happy. He is happy in himself. Thomas Aquinas said that God is happiness by his essence. For he is happy not by acquisition or participation of something else, but by his essence. On the other hand, men are happy by participation. We get happy by participating with God. God is happy totally in and of himself. Now that gives me comfort. He's not needy. He's like going, if only I could really get you guys to straighten up, I'd be really happy. He is consistently happy even when I'm inconsistently faithful. Even when I'm unfaithful, his happiness, he's not codependent. His happiness is unadjusted. It's unaffected by my lack of faithfulness. He is always happy. He is always rejoicing. He is always joyful because he doesn't need anything outside of himself to make him happy. The essence of joy is God himself. He is eternally happy. He is happiness. He is love and he is happy. To meet God is to meet happiness. To be filled with God is to be filled with eternal happiness. To be filled with the Spirit involves joy. If you have no joy, you're not filled with the Spirit. Now we're going to talk about the, the, the there is appropriate sadness. Okay, we'll get to that in just a second. But we did, I think we need to get back to connecting the idea of joy, happiness, gladness, a smile on your face with who God is. It's in his character and it's his nature. And so to be filled with him will involve the Christian being happy and it being visible. Not an inner peace. Peace is part of it. But there's also joy that comes out of you on your face. So how does this challenge your concept of who God is? Just think about that for a second. I tend to think of, I'm just confessing, I tend to think of God as very serious. Jesus laughs occasionally. God, maybe never. Hard for me to imagine. I don't imagine God the Father being a jovial fellow. I imagine him very serious. That's not how the Bible presents him. Sometimes he's very serious. I'd say he's always serious and he's always happy. It's a mystery. I don't have that capacity. I tend to be one or the other, right? Do you picture him happy? Do you have a hard time seeing him as joyful? Do you feel like it's too good to be true that God could be this pleased even when you're not? 
Melancholy can also be an over-response. Like, I, I, I want to be authentic, and so I feel sort of melancholy or sad, or distant, and I don't want to be fake. And Christians kind of have a reputation for being fake. I don't want to push us into that, okay? Be real. But you know, there's a place where you've got to choose happiness, choose joy. There's a faithful choice involved in that. So we can over, over, over kind of overcompensate for uh, being frustrated with people's inauthenticity and, and fakeness. And so we kind of walk around like sad sacks all the time. And we call that authenticity. But to be a truly authentic Christian, as God defines a Christian, is to be joyful. Even in the midst of trials. Kelly is an example of that. I'm not going to pick on her, but we're all thinking it right now. Right? The true happiness in God overcomes even hard circumstance, even sadness. Happiness is holy. Angst doesn't make you real and it doesn't make you authentic. It doesn't make Christian shallowness any deeper. It just misrepresents God. Happiness is holy. So if picturing God as being eternally happy is hard for you, this next point will be even harder. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Loud singing. God sings loud. Why does he sing? Because of you. What? So, okay, this self-existent, God needs nothing else to make him happy, has this relationship with you where now you, this, I'm not trying to be insulting, but you are like a gnat on the behind of the universe. <laughs> okay? You are, your existence apart from God is inconsequential from his perspective. But somehow, you, the gnat, make the Creator happy. And so happy, He can't contain Himself. And again, breaks into song. Starts a musical. I don't like musicals, but I'm okay with God singing over me. <laughs> Loudly exulting. That's like a loud, like obnoxious, right? Like, like raucous. A noisy singing that, that takes everybody's attention. It's a party he's having over you. Each one of you. Think about you with all your mess. And right now, he sees you and he goes, Whoa, Jamie! I gotta sing a song! Here we go! Everybody, this is Jamie's song. I got a song for Jamie, and he sings right now over him. Even Dylan. He's probably singing a delirious song before your time. So God is mighty. He saves us with his might, and in his might, he expresses his exuberant happiness over us. It's not our performance that elicits his joy. He's not... His joy is not a gold star for you. Like, good job, you did well, you got a good grade, I'll, I'll party. That's human joy. That's a human 
kind of response. And it's good to celebrate other people's wins, right? But he's rejoicing over you all the time. Even when you're just bombing it and tripping over yourself and not doing a great job, he's just so glad you're there. He loves you. He cut... This is because he has his own supply of joy. He doesn't need you to supply him with joy. That flows out of him like waves falling over each other. God's joy is your strength. Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12 says, Nehemiah's a great, amazing story of the restoration of the temple. And in the process of that, they rediscover the word of God. It's amazing. And they begin to read it. And the people are mourning the, the trials they've been through and how they had lost so much time. And, and they're all repenting and there's a lot of crying and sacrifices being made and repenting of sin and coming back to God. We've all had moments like that. And they'll see what happens in the middle of it. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people and said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is amazing to me. They're repenting, and, and they're hearing the law read for the first time in generations, and they're repenting. They go, Oh, man, remembering God. And they get kind of graciously rebuked for crying. He says, wait, this is a holy day, so rejoice. It's a, I tend to associate holiness with crying and getting on my face before God and feeling like a sad sack. But he rebukes them and says, no, it's a holy day, therefore get up, go eat, drink, and be merry. Like, and if there's anybody that isn't ready to party, give some of your food to them because we're all going to party in the name of God as a response to his holiness. So the right response to God's holiness even is rejoicing and singing and eating too much food. That's amazing. Happiness is holy. It is not an escape from holiness. It is holiness. God doesn't need your sadness to signify your holiness and devotion. He doesn't need it. It's not your sadness that redeems you. I was in a meeting one time and the preacher was preaching about revival. We need revival in this nation, which I completely agree with. And he made a call for everyone to come up and repent to God. And he was associating revival comes from people crying. And nobody in the room felt like crying. It was just evident. <laughs> right? We're just sitting there. No one, you know, 
And he gets frustrated and keeps calling for people to come down front and no one's coming. And, and then he starts manipulating and saying, well, if, you know, I guess no one has the courage to come down and repent before the Lord. And I got up and walked out. Because I don't believe that's true. It's not what this, the, these guys said, stop crying. There's a time to cry, but time is over. This is a holy moment. Rejoice. The law has been brought back into the camp. The temple has been restored. The walls have been rebuilt. It's time to party. God doesn't need your sadness to signify your holiness. God wants to give us his joy in place of our mourning over sin. His joy is our strength. Your joy is not your strength, and your melancholy, excuse me, your joy is your strength, and your melancholy authenticity is not your strength. Sadness is not your strength. <laughs> your joy is your strength. There's this great quote. Um, I've got the entire thing in the notes. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read a short part of it from G.K., the great G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. He says, man is more himself, man is more manlike or human-like when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief the superficial. Melancholy should be an innocent interlude, a tender and fugitive frame of mind. Praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul. Somebody needs a title, a worship album with that. The permanent pulsation of the soul. Pessimism is at its best an emotional half-holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. So your default state as a Christian is to be joyful and happy. And he allows for, that's what I love about it, sadness. But we understand the sadness as a temporary state, a half holiday away from the normal joy that we are living in. And we're in a moment, a season of sadness, but it is not my permanent state. It is not normal. It is not my default state. It is a vacation for a moment from the joy I usually live in. Do you see that? That is beautiful. So a sad Christian is a bird with a broken wing. It needs to heal so that it can go back to doing what it was designed to do, which is having joy. So we walk through times of mourning. There's good reasons to be sad. An unforgiven soul, for example, has reason to be sad. Without, apart from God, you should, your default state is sadness. You should, to be happy is an anomaly. It's a grace from God to have a moment where you can also view the same sunset that God made and that others see as a work of his hand and a reason to worship. He allows the lost person to see the same sunset and feel a measure of that happiness. That is a grace from God. But it is not their default state. Joy is essential to God's nature. Joy is essential to your new nature. You need it. Sadness is not essential to God's nature, and sadness is not essential to yours. So happiness cannot be had by pursuing happiness. We started with that idea. A person enduring suffering has reason to be sad, and sinfulness is a reason to be sad, but these should not be permanent conditions. I think about Matt's example 
during communion of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sad. I mean, you can't characterize, like don't say Jesus had joy in that moment because he did not. He was crying tears of blood, knowing he was about to take on the sin of the world and be separated from his father to lose that connectedness. And he was sad about it. That was a good reason to be sad. That was a holy morning, all right? But what, why did he do it? Let's look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, famous scripture. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, for the happiness that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the sadness of the cross for the sake of future happiness, future gladness in God. So he's looking at joy, sacrificing a present joy for a future joy. And he says we do the same thing. We endure suffering looking to what? To Christ who is our happiness, who is our joy. We look at him and we endure in the moment. When you're going through a time of testing and trial or failure and you feel sad, appropriately sad over that. Like there's, when you sin, you should feel like a sadness. I wish I hadn't done that. And I'll sit in it here for a minute. And I'm going to bring that sadness. I'm going to look to Christ and he lifts the morning off of me and says, I've forgiven you, I love you, and then joy is restored, right? Hope is essential to our joy. Trusting God that there is a joy before you will directly impact your present joy in the middle of difficult things. I think this is probably, if we could survey people like Kelly across the country who go through hard things and somehow maintain joy, I think what we would find consistently is that their hope is in God. There is a future joy. God is their hope. And because they have hope, they can have a measure of joy now, even in the midst of the sadness. So I think Satan always attacks your hope first, it seems like. At least that's true for me. It's like the, the light at the end of the tunnel goes away. The light goes out. I don't believe God's in my future anymore. God's not waiting for me. He's not already gone there and he's waiting for me at the end of it, going, hey, I'm here, I've traveled all the way through it, the way's open, and I'm here, and it's going to be good. I lose sight of that, and my joy and happiness just, whoof, goes. And when I get hold of that again, it comes back. So I don't want to have a superficial day, and if you're sad this morning... I just want you to ask the question, is it an appropriate sadness? It might, really might be, okay? Mourning is holy. Um, re regret over sin is holy, as long as you don't stay there, right? All these things are real and they're appropriate, and sometimes we just have to endure it, looking ahead to the joy that's before us, right? I don't want you being fake about your trials. But even in that place, you wrestle with God not just to overcome your circumstances, but to get some happiness, to get some joy. That's appropriate. God, I'm tired of not being able to smile. Help me. Give me the gift 
of happiness in this moment. Fill me so completely that joy comes out of me despite where I'm at. James 1, 2 through 4 famously tells us to count it all joy when we meet difficulties in life because it is perfecting us. Again, for the hope of being perfected, I'll endure this difficult thing because there's more joy in being perfect. I mean, I can't wait to look at you and you look at me and go, you're perfect. And for it not to make everyone laugh. I'm perfect. And that's not an arrogant thing to say anymore. Perfect. James uses that word. That's why we count it all joy, not because we're fake Christians and are ignoring the situation we're in. But we say, this situation I'm in is perfecting me. And that's awesome. So, wrapping it up, no matter how deep the sadness, remember that it isn't your default state. It's not who you are. It doesn't define you. It's not your identity, and it is not forever. You may have to endure for a season, but it's only a season. There is hope. Number two, if you're sad, make it count eternally. Make it count. Don't waste your suffering. And you make it count by worshiping God in the middle of the sadness. You worship him right from the pit, from the hole in the ground that you don't see any way out of, and you begin to worship him. And it can be like a little squeaky church mouse, like squeaky, quiet, whispery, off-tune, whatever. You just worship him in the pit, and the lights come on when you do that. And you're no longer wasting your trial and your suffering and your sadness. You're making it count for something eternally. And you get a byproduct of a little light of joy comes on in the middle of that. And third, choose joy as a response to what Jesus has done and who he is with the same seriousness as you do holiness. I think we have been really good at talking about pursuing, working, wrestling God for holiness. God, I want to I be less sinful. I want to I ignore you less. I want to be better at my Bible, better at prayer, better at these things. And we're wrestling, encouraging each other. Hold, hold me accountable, brother, for my prayer time. Hold me accountable, brother, for what I watch on the Internet. Hold me accountable, brother, for getting in my word every day. Do we ever say, hold me accountable, brother, for being happy? Walk, if you see me being a sad sack over nothing, which is my default state, and I mean over nothing, maybe ask me what's wrong with you. Why, are you, why so sad? Why so downcast, old Ben soul? <laughs> Got a reason? Um, not really. I mean, my dog got on my nerves last night and woke me up and said, acted like she needed to go pee. This really happened. Acted like she needed to go outside and go pee, and then she goes outside at 6 o'clock in the morning and does nothing but sniff the grass and come back inside. <laughs> and I'm like, go out there and go pee. And she's like, mm-mm. Don't feel like I just wanted to go outside for a minute. I was bored. Thought I'd wake you up. Maybe we could have some quality time. You want to feed me? Give me some water? My bowl's empty. I could use that. You want to hang out? I'll lick you, right? And I'm staying there at 6 o'clock in the morning. It's too late. I'm awake now. I'm just up, stupid dog. <laughs> right? Ben, what's wrong with you? I'm really sad. Why? Something stupid. 
sadness should not be our default state. We need to hold each other account. We need to tr- pursue joy with the same seriousness we do as holiness. And we need to encourage one another to do the same. Without being fake, giving people room to mourn appropriately. When it's time to mourn, you mourn. When it's time to be sad, you be sad. But it is not your permanent state. You should not live there. So let's pray. I want to pray very simply that you and I would be happy. How's that sound? That seems like an easy sell to me. Sounds. Let's do that. Stand up. And we'll pray. And then we'll worship. If you're in a pit this morning, you just, you've been in a cycle of um, melancholy and it feels like now you're just there all the time, I just want to encourage you to just ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. But then no matter how you feel, when we sing together in a minute, worship God with everything you got. Like, defy the melancholy sadness in your soul with worship. Amen? So I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll do that. So God, I just do ask right now that every one of us would be filled with joy, filled with life, filled with the Spirit. God, we believe you that you are a happy God, and that you love to give happiness to your kids just like food. And so we are here hungry for joy, hungry for gladness, glad hearts, hungry for genuine smiles on our faces that are not drummed up or forced, but are genuine because we are rooted in you and our hope is in you. God, I pray that you would fill us with that right now. And God, I pray for anyone here who feels as though they're in a pit of sadness where there's just a lack of joy and has been so for a long time. God, I pray that you would meet them and mend their souls like, like those birds with broken wings. They're meant to fly. They're meant to have joy. That's what they're designed for, and they don't have it. God, I pray that you would mend their souls, mend their hearts, that they would be able to feel that sense of lightness and joy in you. God, if the light, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, the hope that you are in their future... If that's been turned out for them, I pray that you would open that back up for them. God, just, in, just enough faith, enough mustard seed-sized faith to believe that you are who you say you are, that you are there, you are present, you are present now, and you are present in the future. And any sadness they endure now is temporary. God, I just ask by your Spirit that you would do that in all of us and make us people who give this away to others that we would represent the gospel as being good news of great joy to the world. In the name of Jesus.